All right, all right. Welcome to the Canvas Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, books, books, books. We've all certainly learned a lot from reading books, but what is the future of the hard copy printed volume? We'll talk with one of the most well-known and prolific naval authors of our time, Norman Friedman. But first, a look at this week's naval news. Chinese ships and aircraft continue to operate and encircle Taiwan. The island nation's Ministry of Defense said November 21st, 10 Chinese aircraft and three naval ships were being tracked that date by the Taiwan military, which claimed that at that point, a total of 339 Chinese aircraft and 56 naval ships had operated within the country's air and defense identification zones in November alone. The French Navy took delivery of its last Frem frigate on November 16th. The Lorraine is the eighth Frem frigate overall for the French Navy and one of two air defense variants. The two air defense frigates will be primarily assigned as escorts for the carrier Charles de Gaulle and the French Navy's three assault ships. And as we speak, the carrier USS Gerald R. Ford is returned to Norfolk November 26th after a shakedown deployment lasting just under seven weeks. The Ford's first cruise with an embarked air group and a multinational strike group featured several exercises, as well as port calls to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Portsmouth, England. After a maintenance period, the Ford will begin workups next year for an expected full six- or seven-month deployment, probably to the European Theater of Operations. One indicator of this shakedown deployment success might be the headline November 18th in the Times of London as the ship was visiting Portsmouth. Welcome aboard USS Badass, the Times said, the world's biggest warship. A new acronym regarding the U.S. Navy's big Zumwalt-class destroyers has appeared. Zeus for Zumwalt Enterprise Upgrade Solution. The Zeus upgrades, which appeared in a government notice November 17th, seeking sources for the program, seeks to replace existing unique systems and components on the ships with systems more like those on other Navy surface combatants. The first-in-class Sumwalt is scheduled to enter a shipyard near the end of 2023 for a major upgrade that will include the installation of launch tubes capable of firing hypersonic weapons. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. Well, folks, we are extremely lucky today to have on the show Norman Friedman, certainly one of the finest, most prolific, and most well-known among today's naval historians and authors. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Friedman. Thank you so much, Chris. Glad great to be here. It's, it, it, it's outstanding to have you here today. Um, you know, I've been a fan of yours, and I think I've even a friend. I'll, I'll, I'll go out on my oh, yeah. own limb there. And uh, we've, we've known each other for a long, long, long time, a few decades, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you were somebody, when, when you started putting books out and I started finding them and reading them, um, you um, upped my level of comprehension of naval matters exponentially. I mean, you know, I've been reading this stuff for a long time, um, but there were, there, there are a lot of terms and, uh, happenstance, just things that nobody ever really explains. Dozens of books ex- refer to these things. Norman Friedman was the first guy who came along who actually explained this. And uh, I mean, it's just, uh, you, you've made an outstanding contribution to the understanding of naval history and naval affairs, I think um, far more than, than just about anybody else we can name. 
uh, what, what I want to talk about today is I have I have a lot of your books. I mean, and I've actually read a lot of your books. I don't just have them. Um, and of course, the, the books that uh, Norman Friedman's written about, he's he's written histories, he's written things like the 50 year war about the Cold War, histories of Desert Storm, the war in Afghanistan, network century warfare, modern warship design and development, multiple books about weapon systems, not to mention hundreds of articles and dozens of publications. And of course, the extremely comprehensive series of design histories of U.S. Navy warships, which if you're listening to this and you like warships and are interested in warships on, a, on, a, on an amateur or professional level, you should have read and you should be reading. Um, but, you know, Norman, I, I'm starting to wonder, what's the future of books? Are people still buying books? You're still oh, writing no. books. The royalty statements say they still buy. Right. Um, and certainly a lot of books get written, uh, many of which could probably not get written, save a lot of trees. Um, I think that it's still very live. The, the, the real question is, if your attention span is limited by what you pick up on the internet, you may not have the patience to read anything. Um, the internet looks as though it answers most questions, but it doesn't. It's uh, usually what people get from each other. I would argue that you want people who actually dig into archives and files of various sorts to find out what happened. And that that's fairly rare, but I think it has a considerable future. Uh, the other thing is that you cannot get electronically the sort of uh, quality of, of illustration right. that's common in, in the more elaborate books. And that alone probably keeps them in business. You can certainly get photographs, but you don't get a lot of them and you don't get the explanations. At least I don't think so. I would agree. I mean, you know, you, you have a, one, one speaking as a fan, um, one of the format choices you made a long time ago is your books are always very well illustrated. And uh, speaking as somebody who, I'm sorry, folks, I do look at the pictures. I do buy books for the pictures. And uh, books without pictures are, I think, dull. Um, do something. And Norman Freeman books are always heavily illustrated. But you write extensive captions. You don't just illustrate what you're talking about in the text. The captions give you a chance to just, you know, kind of an aside. Here's, here's a picture of this, and we're already talking about that, but in this picture, you can see this and that and that. And it's, there's a whole, you actually put out two books kind of in parallel in the same publication sometimes. And I don't think you can get that in, in, the, in electronic media like Kindle and Aura. I mean, do you, do you feel that? No, no I, I, I don't think so either. Uh, look, if you're writing about things, and the things are complicated and interesting, you want to show what they look like. And if you're looking at them, you want to see things in those photographs that aren't obvious. Otherwise, why bother? Right. Uh, I, I really hate it when someone writes a book in which you take some photograph and says, here is a beautiful photograph of X. Well, if it's so beautiful, people who look at it are going to see that and say, wow, that's a neat photo. So the question is, either you say, this is X, or you say, this is X, and if you take a good look at it, right. you look at the thing on the left, 
that's something you never really thought much about. You don't say that, of course. And it's really this thing, Z. And this other thing on the right goes with it. They fit together. Once you're saying that, you're giving a sense of the logic of it. It's more than just, here's a nice pretty picture to be happy with. Now, you have to make the effort to find the photos that show the neat things that you want to point out. And there are a lot of neat things out there. And sometimes you're lucky and you can get good photos, and sometimes you're unlucky and there are miserable photos. Right. But you do your best. And it's a lot easier writing after people started taking photos. Even back in the 1880s, you see good photos. And oh, by the way, as you stare at these photos, you start asking questions. Well, well how come it has that thing sticking up on the, on the right? What, what was that? So you go back. And if you can, if you're very lucky, you see plans that are marked up with, this is what that is. Okay, great. You, your job is to try to give people a better sense of what they're seeing and what's there and a better sense of why it happened. That's another issue. Uh, how come there were 15 destroyers in this year's program and uh, two of them in that year? Right. Okay, well, there's a reason. It doesn't happen because someone threw cards. Uh, so you start thinking about, well, well, how does the Navy work as a Navy? What fits together? And, and really, you write because you want to know why things happened. If you didn't care what happened, you wouldn't care to write anything. You could just buy a picture somewhere. And, and that's fine, but that's not what people buy books for. You want something people would like to know. At least so, that's what I imagine. So like on, uh, on, on, on uh, so social media and Facebook. I'm 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 on a number of news groups in Facebook, a lot of maritime things, a lot of naval things. There's a lot of really very interested folks on there, and they're not stupid. They're but they're they're seriously interested. They want to know more. But there's there's this sort of uh, there's, there's a habit of crowdsourcing now. Is sort of what I'm getting at. People just come on and go, uh, you know, I just found out about this. How come nobody ever knows about that? How come I never heard about this before? Sometimes the answer is, did you read a book? I mean, do you do you sense this? I mean, you know, you you uh, you teach as well as write books. You know, you sure. you do courses, and you do very high professional courses. Um, do you sense that? Is there is there any dearth of people reading? Is it is it harder to get people to read things when they, without being assigned it? Do you sense any trend like that? Very hard to tell. I uh, certainly you see a lot of things that are, are advertised and discussed, how much of it is actually read, you can never tell. Uh, you, you know that, that there are books that people buy in order to show off and, and they never read them. Uh, all of us have heard of those. Uh, you hope that you can get people interested. I don't really know. Uh, it's very is, hard to tell. I know just, people who write. Uh, right now, I know mostly airplane people, and they certainly don't seem very discouraged. Between my time at the Naval Academy and uh, the postgraduate school and time on board a ship as an officer of the deck, 
I've read many of, of your books. I've, I've looked things up at, at sea. I've, um, I've been quizzed on them and a variety of different uh, professional boards that I've been on. So the, the reference value of sort of one selection of your books, um, you, you know, there's an entire, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, there's an entire generation of uh, naval officers uh, that owe you, uh, uh, you know, a hearty thank you for, for helping us grow up. And then there is um, the work that you do for the U.S. Naval Institute um, in proceedings. Can you talk a little bit about, from a naval standpoint, the difference in your mind or how you go about uh, doing the two different types of work? Because I would think that it's kind of very different and they don't always build on each other. Um, is, is it just, you know, because you have an assignment or that something grabs your attention? H how do you sort of reconcile the work that you do in books, building on what you and Chris just talked about, versus the more topical, um, kind of shorter, easier to consume work that you do for proceedings? Well, you got to know that, that I started out in the think tank world. And so uh, those concerns are often things that you don't end up writing a book about. For example, um, for many years, I did a, a monthly column in proceedings, and often it had uh, political aspects. So uh, one year, uh, I remember uh, there was a rebellion in southern Mexico. And that struck me as kind of important. So that's what I wrote about. And it turned out that uh, a couple of days after it appeared in proceedings, uh, someone shot one of the Mexican presidential candidates. Uh, and no, I didn't call up someone and say, hey, you know, uh, back my column and, and do something serious. But that's different. Um, the political stuff, the stuff about future trends, it's buried in what I write uh, always. But the stuff that you write on a on a monthly or bi-monthly basis is different. Uh, if you look around now, if you're interested in, in where we're going, you're gonna be talking about things like what deters the Chinese, if anything. Uh, what does a future war look like? Well, I'm not, my crystal ball isn't that good, but it's not terrible. Uh, what's happening in Ukraine? What does it mean that, that the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet got itself sunk. Was it sunk because it's a terrible ship? Was it sunk because of uh, innate problems in, in the Russian military? I think it's the latter. Uh, does it mean something for future naval operations? And those, those things are more speculative because you're looking ahead and you have to try to look ahead. If you're writing historically, you're really thinking about, well, well can I find out what happened? And the documentary record varies. Some of it's very good, some of it's awful. You try your best to, to stay with what, what's been said. You try to understand how people back then thought about each other. And the more you get into that, the more you're interested in personalities. Uh, many of the personalities are very difficult to guess. Uh, I've written a lot about the British they're a different culture. I think I understand roughly how they think, but not as well as I understand being an American. That's different. If you're writing about other foreign countries, you're getting a lot more exotic. Uh, I once spent a lot of time reading their French material. 
and I, I would hate to say that I understand the French Navy worth anything compared to the way I understand ours and to some extent the British or the Australians or the Canadians, all from a different. So when you write about current events, that's a different cast of mind. But remember when, when uh, I've been in the think tank world, that's what I was doing. Uh, I was very concerned with things like, um, how do you talk about nuclear weapons? Basically with Great Depression. Uh, how do you talk about uh, economics? That's a different racket. You know, there's been this discussion um, over the last, I guess, five, six years about this idea of return to great power competition. And, um, you know, we're seeing it play out a, a bit with the war in Ukraine. And as you mentioned, uh, looking at the Chinese and trying to figure them out and trying to figure out what conflict potentially with the Chinese would look like. How much are you able or do, do your students or the consumers of your material, how, how much do you think what you've written about the Cold War is applicable in some of today's discussions? And, and how much is it is it different? Um, just as we sort of move from sort of the kind of the foundation of, of books versus journals to actually what you've written and what you're seeing now. Well, first of all, it's kind of backwards with China. Um, the basic Cold War idea was containment, that, that the internal pressures in the Soviet Union would destroy it, which turned out to be the case. So that as long as they were unable to get what they wanted, uh, they would fall apart. Uh, that comes out of an analysis written by George Kennan in 1946. First of all, people have forgotten that was done. So the concept of the way the Cold War worked has largely been dissipated. I don't know why that is. Uh, I remember being at a conference on uh, sea control. Oh, this must be five or six years ago. And the person who called the conference start out by saying, well, we had no strategy in the past, blah, blah, blah. Well, no, you did have a strategy in the past. It was that if we could hold the Soviets in, they'll kill themselves. That was a real strategy. It worked. People have forgotten that as far as I can tell. People also tend not to look at whatever weaknesses there are in current Chinese system. Uh, it's a system under enormous tension. If you look at, at the measures that Mr. Z has been taking, they're measures to keep people locked down. And they're measures, I'm not talking about with COVID, I'm talking about in general. And measures like that suggest a fear of some kind of explosion or some kind of disintegration. Well, if I were a US government trying to deter the Chinese from pushing too hard, I would emphasize those issues. The Chinese have run a, a kind of a cyber fascist state. Uh, cyber tends to be uh, vulnerable to hacking. And in fact, uh, their big database was apparently stolen at some point by hackers and then sold back to them. Uh, if the hackers actually managed that, that suggests that there was only one copy and they managed to destroy it and then offer it back as one of those cyber ransom things. That was kind of interesting. You don't hear much about it. And you don't hear much about it because, oh, we can't talk about what we would do. Well, if you don't talk about what you would do, you can't deter people. 
that's really the story of nuclear deterrence. I don't think people catch on. Uh, we have not spent much time talking about their weaknesses, only ours. Well, if you're always defensive, bad things are going to happen. And I'm not quite clear as to why we haven't done that. Uh, that goes back to, do you learn from what we've done? Well, what we've done was a mixture of staving off a war, which was very successful, and making sure that, that the pressures, the internal pressures came to bear. The, the Cold War didn't end because Mr. Gorbachev was a nice man. It ended for various reasons because of the, their weaknesses. So what other lessons can you, can you pull out from the past that are probably applicable today? I mean, a lot of us look at World War I and the, the years leading up to World War I, the great power competition between Germany and uh, Britain, the Kaiser's attempt to build up a Navy from really not much at all to challenge the preeminent Navy of, of the time and the way that Navy, the British reacted to it. Are there, are there lessons there to be? Well, to be the first thing about World War I is that the more you look at it, especially reading some of the German historians, the more suspicious you are that the usual explanation of World War I is hooey. Uh, what the Germans found, I think, some of them anyway, was that internal pressures inside Germany caused the German army to decide to start a war, which they thought would be quick and victorious, and would flip German politics. Uh, people don't talk about that because the assumption is that there are these bigger factors. And, and how could you possibly imagine that someone would start a war for internal political reasons? And the answer is that they were spectacularly stupid. As far as the German Navy went, it's worse. It looks as though Turpus was basically a careerist who wanted a big Navy because he was sick of being part of a small minor one. And he managed to sell the Kaiser on it, but there was no connection between what he was doing and their war plan. That, that comes out, if, if you read their uh, official history, which the British translated most of, first of all, it's fairly pathetic, but it's quite clear that, that there was no connection. The German army staff ran the game and they didn't care about navies. That was something you know irrelevant. So that the impact of Turpus's internal success was horrible. What he did was he managed to uh, convince Germans to back his Navy by building anti-British sentiment as hard as he could. Every time British officers talked to Turpitz, he would say, oh, no, 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 that's just propaganda. Uh, I'm not really anti-British. Well, the British didn't get the joke. Surprise. Uh, they knew they lived or died on, on naval power because Britain ate most, most of what Britain ate was imported. It was very simple. You lose naval power, you starve. They knew that. So what a shock. They decided that the Germans were after them. What Turpitz basically did was to guarantee that if there was a war, if they ever started anything stupid, the British would jump in. Now, the British were allied 
the British had signed this uh, a treaty with Belgium that if Belgian neutrality was violated, they would start, they would come in. And that really had to do with a feeling that Belgium was the, the place to launch an invasion of Britain. But you can see their entry into World War I, which is what guaranteed that it wouldn't end fast as an expression of, of their need to, to maintain a, a great power stability in Europe. But I've got to tell you that that kind of thing doesn't inspire large numbers of people to join up and start fighting. If you believe it's your life, boy, that inspires people. And the Germans did their best to convince them of that. Now, the, the word that is written across all of this is stupider than you could ever imagine, right? For reasons that I don't understand, no one ever wanted to say this was a major crime by the German general staff and they should all have been shot. The Germans don't want to say it, although in the 60s, German historians pretty much proved it. Uh, no one else really likes this kind of explanation because it's so embarrassing. Now, if you really want to be scared, what it really says is if there's an internal problem that's going to take you down, you may think that an external attack is a way to stay in business. If you really want to be depressed, uh, you could think of a Chinese attack on Taiwan that way. On the other hand, one of the effects of watching a Russian success in Ukraine is that you might be a little nervous about how it would come out. Whether the Chinese are or are not nervous, you can't tell. They're very good at concealing their thinking. Plus, most of us can't read Chinese. And even if we could, the, the, the thinking inside is most unlikely to be transparent. Right. So well, no. go back to World War I, and the lessons you draw may be a little different depending on your outlook. Norman, we could go on and on. And I, you know, I, I have several dozen more questions I'd like to throw to you. But doggone it, we're out of time. Uh, before we go, it is it is Christmas season. People like to buy books around Christmas and gifts. What have you got in the pipeline right now? What is coming out under your name in the next few months? Well, uh, there's one book coming, which is on British coastal forces. Uh -huh. And that's supposed to come out in February. Um, it's a British book that will be picked up by Naval Institute. Uh, my guess is they'll be pretty much on time. They're very good. Uh, beyond that, uh, I'm working on a history of uh, Cold War SW. I think it's important because... Anti-submarine warfare. Yeah. Almost no one is left in the service who's experienced any kind of uh, large-scale anti-submarine warfare. The kind that was practiced uh, after the Cold War is very different. It's against the very few submarines in shallowish water. It's very difficult. It's not a joke but it's differently difficult than deep water, the sort of thing that, that we practiced during the Cold War. I think it's important to capture some of that. Uh, also, further off, uh, I'll probably do a history of British carriers. I did one many years ago, but the material now is much better, and uh, hopefully it'll be a different book. And they have some new aircraft carriers now. Which yes, and I'm sure they're... they're the number of aircraft is somewhat pathetic, unfortunately. But yes, they do. 
and and it's an interesting story. And 25 years ago, you didn't you didn't, you didn't see those ships coming. Oh and no, it, no, not at all. It. it was it was all over 25 years ago, and right. if the RAF had its brothers, I think it would be all over now. Ah, humbug! All right, folks, uh, that that is really is all we got time for today. We could go on forever. Our guest has been Norman Friedman, um, author, historian, uh, lecturer, and just all around darn great guy. So, Norman, I mean it. Thanks for being on today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks, Norman. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right. You know what that means. It's time for Squawk Box. And this week, Mr. Cavus talks about the value of the written word. Thanks, Chris. You know, there's no question that over the past three decades or so, social media has changed how we communicate and gather information. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, WhatsApp, and others all have their own unique formats. Wikipedia, which relies essentially on crowdsourcing, has become the generic all-purpose reference work. E-readers and tablets provide easy, lightweight devices, allowing anyone to carry thousands of books anywhere they go in digital form. And even better, digital documents are searchable. All these formats have their own advantages. But you know, you also have to know what to search for. And there remains something to be said about the old-fashioned hard copy printed book. We've just heard from one of the most prolific and accomplished writers on naval affairs anywhere. While Norman Friedman has put out his fair share of histories, works that transfer relatively easily to digital form, he's also produced a few dozen indispensable technical histories that do not, in my opinion, reproduce well on a digital screen. As we noted, Friedman's works are published on several levels. There's a main narrative, there are lavish illustrations with extensive and detailed captions not repeated in the narrative, and there are almost always several appendices providing, for example, such things as lists of ships with many of their details and particulars. You don't just read a Norman, design, Norman Friedman design history, you study it in detail over and over. And that's something I don't think reproduces well in digital form. Facebook, for example, features thousands of news groups, many on naval topics. I'm routinely impressed by the numbers of people interested in such things. I'm also impressed how they simply don't know things. I notice how many people frequently cite the well-done videos on YouTube by a user calling himself Drakenefell. It's good amateur stuff, presented in easily, easily digestible form, and he's built a considerable and well-deserved following. But where do you think Drakenefell gets his information? I'll give you a hint. It's in books, lots of books. Not just books currently in print or for sale on Amazon, but books long out of print, many hard to find, obscure yet valuable. Books that are nowhere to be found in digital form. Books that are based on primary records from the actual source of information, not relying on secondary sources, which is where the vast majority of websites and videos rely to get their information. I admit to being disappointed at the near disappearance of the large, well-stocked bookstore, something that was thriving until the past decade or so. I know the dwindling number of really good used bookstores full of treasures. The fine art of browsing hundreds of books looks like an endangered act. I've tried to embrace the digital age as much as anyone in my age group, but I don't think I'll ever give up the good old-fashioned hard copy, page-turning printed book. Well, thanks, Chris. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. 
Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey.